Hebrews 11, really famous piece of the Bible and one that we've preached on many times, but I just, I keep coming back to it because there's so much, there's just so much there. And in particular, it starts off with a litany of people who were disappointed. I mean, again and again and again, we read these stories of, of remarkable biblical characters that the Bible tells us didn't get what they wanted. So in Hebrews 11, we're introduced to Abel, a guy who shows up early on in the stories of the Bible, who was generous toward God, who had a, an abundant, gracious spirit, and then got murdered, which seems like a raw deal. And then we read about the story of Enoch, who was faithful to God, who had these crazy and supernatural encounters with God, who was blessed by God, and then vanished. Then we read about the story of Noah, who was used by God, who was obedient to God, and then, and then his life came off the rails, and his family blew up, and he got involved in all kinds of weird nonsense, and, well, he, he, hit, a, he hit a bad patch at the end. Then we read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then we read about Moses, who, who led God's people out of captivity like 95% of the way to the promised land and then screwed up and didn't get to go into the promised land himself. Now, all these people, the Bible says, lived in faith but didn't receive what was promised to them. And I thought, man, doesn't that just sound like us? Living in faith, trusting in God, and yet... You probably feel like you haven't gotten everything that was promised. You probably feel like your romantic relationships haven't quite lived up to what they promised. You haven't, you haven't quite experienced all that you'd hoped for this year at work. You probably haven't gotten everything from God that you felt like God promised you. And Lord knows 2020 has been an absolute carnival of delights thus far. So what are we supposed to do when we feel like we didn't get what was promised? Well, I started going back and, and reading and pouring over this piece of the Bible. And we'll, we'll read a few verses here in just a second. And I realized if, if you're primarily focused on yourself, on your own happiness, on your own enjoyment, on your own satisfaction, you will always be dissatisfied unenjoyable and unhappy because your life's not about you your life's about everybody but you your life's about the people around you and the people behind you and and it's not like you're doomed to misery don't get me wrong but the primary focus of your life shouldn't be inward but outward and when my dad died Earlier this year, my middle brother, Dwayne, wrote his obituary, and there was a line in the obituary that made me scratch my head. And it said, if someone were to ask Bishop McDonald what his mission in life was, he would reply with just one word, others. Now, it made me scratch my head because I've never heard Dad say that. And so I was like, hey, man, uh, I feel like I'm one of at least three people that should have heard that particular mission statement. The funny thing was, it was, it was, it's totally consistent with who he was and how he lived. He was an outwardly focused person. He took seriously the instructions of the Apostle Paul who said that he's going to pour out his life like a drink offering over the altar. He took seriously the example of Jesus who gave up his life for others. He took seriously the words of the Apostle John who said, greater love has no man than this, 
And he laid down his life for his friends. Your life is yours to give away. And when you do, when you live outwardly focused, when you live to give, there's great rewards. But you might not get everything you were hoping for. And so we're going to go through these few verses here, and I just, I just think these are six reminders for you and me. And six things that we want to pass on to the people around and behind us. Because make no mistake, friends, this is a critical time in human history. Especially for the younger generations. The millennials, the zennials, the young guys and gals. They're at a crossroads, you know. Because we've got a crazy amount of adversity that's hitting them. School is upside down. Work is upside down. Society is upside down. Can't play sports. Can't go outside. Might as well cancel Christmas. What the heck is going on? And with this much adversity, one of two things is going to happen to young people. Either they will become absolutely crippled, useless, and a drain on themselves and the people around them. Which, P.S., is what our society has been prophesying about our youth for the last two decades. That millennials and zennials are the great cosmic American disappointment. Or they will rise above adversity and heal this broken world with faith imagination and industry the likes of which you and I have never been able to fathom now yeah you can amen you know why you can amen because your church is with you because your family's with you because God in heaven is with you and if he's with you then so are we 100% and even if the whole rest of the world decides they're going to be stupid and lazy not you and not us See, because the same thing that's true for those young guys and gals is true for you too. You might think it's too late, that you're too old, that your time is done, that you're just hanging on until Jesus comes. Forget it, man. You're in the wrong place. You're part of the wrong faith, and you've got the wrong spirit in you to give up now. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These people, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Moses, they all died in faith having never received the things that were promised to them, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It's funny, when you start pulling apart these words, you realize that there's a lot going on in just a couple of sentences. Like they never received all of the promises that God offered them, but they, they saw them, that's critical. This is the first thing I want you to remember. The first thing I want you to pass on. That vision creates legacy. It starts with Abraham, right? Abraham is summoned by God. We're told earlier in the chapter, we're told also in the book of, of Genesis, that God calls to Abraham, says, get up and go to a land that I will show you. So Abraham leaves everything behind because he hears the voice of God, because he's obedient to the will of God, and he sees, he sees what God is offering him. He has vision. Now, because Abraham has that vision of a far-off place, of a new home, a home he never gets to, a home he never gets to enjoy, but because he can envision that future, the whole world changes. 
Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the children, the 12 tribes of Israel. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, we get the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who in turn appoints 12 apostles to carry forth the gospel. the good news of the gospel of God that goes out over all the planet, not just to Jewish people, but to all people. That's why the apostles tell us, why Paul in particular tells us that you and me, even though we're not Jewish, we're still heirs to the promise of Abraham. We have the seed of Abraham's faith living inside us. We've been grafted into the family of Abraham because Abraham believed and didn't even get what he believed. Because he believed, because he had vision, the whole world is different for you and me. Vision creates legacy. Now, you might not think vision as much. You got some fairy ideas in your head. You got some dreams about how you're going to be a painter or a singer or whatever. They seem so silly, right? I'm 67 years old. What do I need to learn how to paint for? I'm 42. How come I need to think about going to the gym? What do I need a master's degree for? I'm just a mom. You got all these things in your head telling you that your vision is dumb, that your dreams are silly. Don't listen to those voices. Your vision changes reality. It changes the future. Your dreams drive you forward. Your dreams are how God uses you to heal the world. Your dreams are how God changes the destiny of your family. You think about it. If all you had was vision, it's the greatest legacy and inheritance you could ever leave the people around you or behind you. You think about it. If you're totally poor, you live in a garbage dump. You live in a shanty town. You're somewhere in the backwater town of South Africa or Swaziland. Let's say you're in Siberia, freezing your fanny off, living in an igloo. If all you got is a campfire stove and a tin of beet soup, if you got vision, you have everything you need to change the future for your children. Because a father freezing by that fire, telling his children that one day they're going to be able to keep what they earn and earn what they like, to have a farm, to have a future, to have a job, to have a family, that they're going to get out of their hovel and they're going to get into a home and that home is going to be passed on from generation, that they're going to pass on their own legacy to their sons and their sons, to their daughters and their daughters. That father's just changed life for those kids forever. With what? With words? No, with his spirit. With his vision. Vision creates legacy. Abraham had vision. A vision he didn't see fulfilled. But you and I do. We see it every day. These people died without getting what was promised. But having seen them, seen the vision, seen the future, and having greeted them from far off. This is a funny statement, right? You ever greeted somebody from far off? Like when I think about that, I think about all the years that I've been a pastor. A long time I've been a pastor. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi had brown hair when I first started being a pastor. Long time I've been a pastor. And, my whole, and your whole life as a pastor, people think, oh, this must be so neat to preach. No, no, this is a, we do very little preaching. Mostly what we try and do is get you to do stuff you don't want to do. That's really the essence of being a pastor. Like, for example, um, come help us at the church, you know, pick up the garbage or go serve the community somehow. And so I've spent a great deal of my life calling you saying, hey, man, you want to come help at the church? Hey, man, you want to come help paint the church? Hey, man, you want to come help clean the restrooms at the church? 
Hey, man, you want to come set up the kids' ministry for the church? Hey, man, somebody went weird on Sunday. Want to come be on a security team for the church? Hey, man, hey, man, hey, man, hey, man, mine, mine. And when somebody finally shows up, I mean, when it's a Tuesday afternoon and you're here in this place by yourself, you're picking up gum wrappers from the ladies' restroom on your hands and knees wondering why you went to seminary. When you finally see somebody show up, you greet them from afar. Touchdown. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody is here to help me with this place. Because what you see, what you're greeting, what you see is the evidence that something's about to be different. You see proof. Proof that a new reality, that a new future is possible. Proof that you're going to get help. Proof that you're going to get there. And so you have gratitude. And gratitude, this is number two, cultivates hope. See, when you see that first little bit of proof, and you thank God for it, and you thank the people who provide it, if you're like Abraham and you see the future far out there, like just a little cheerio on the horizon, once you start finding that proof, once you start thanking God for that proof and start celebrating that proof, it feels like it takes on a life of its own. It becomes more significant. You think about it, you attract more of it, you intensify it, you dream about it, and lo and behold, that proof starts to grow and grow and grow. And because you know there's already proof that God is being faithful, there's already proof that people are working for the good of the world, there's already proof that you're going to have a better life and a better future. You feel hope. And hope does not disappoint. These people lived by faith, didn't get all the things that were promised, but they saw it. They had vision. And they greeted it from afar, cultivating hope. Because they knew they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's hilarious. Hilarious. Do you know what happens when you, when you realize you're a stranger, like that you don't really fit in here, you don't really belong here? Your expectations change. I mean, when you know that you, you're not from around these parts, you stop acting entitled. You take on the quality of grace, of curiosity. You know you're gonna have to do some work some finagling, maybe some transition or some translation work. And as a result, you chill out. Like I remember being in Paris one time. This is the exact opposite of someone chilling out. The exact opposite of someone who knows they're a stranger. And there was a big woman. I mean, a big, she was probably seven women in one suit. Big woman at the counter at a McDonald's yelling at the little French girl in Paris because the girl didn't know how to speak American. Why don't you speak American? Guess going deal for say. That's somebody who who cannot accept that they're a stranger. And when you can't accept that you're a stranger, you lash out. You become a spaz. You're flaky, you're mean, intransigent, unkind. But when you can accept that you are a stranger and an exile, when you can accept that you don't quite fit in just yet, when you can accept that this is your starting point, this is your reality, you don't have to accept that it's going to be this way forever. You're just going to have to accept that this is where you start. 
Well, that sober realization makes you steadfast. Now, steadfastness is a funny word. This is number three. Sobriety provides steadfastness. Steadfast is a funny word because a word in the Bible, the Bible uses it all the time. I never use it in real life, not till today. But it's the positive articulation of the, the negative truth. What I really want to say is don't be such a flake. But I want to say it positively, so I say sobriety provides steadfastness, which is less clear but more positive. But when you're, when you're steadfast, when you know your starting point, when you're realistic about where you are and who you are, well, you can be calm. You can be sure of yourself. You can move forward steadily as a non-anxious presence. Somebody who knows there's going to be some work to do and you're not going to run from it. These people were strangers and exiles. Yet they spoke thus that they were seeking a homeland. I love that. They've got vision. They live with gratitude. They're not getting all riled up about the fact that they don't have everything they want just yet. And now they speak about the future because they're searching for a homeland. Meaning what? It means because they don't deny the reality of the hardship in which they live. They don't deny how frustrating their circumstances are. Now, now that they know what's going on, they can start to speak positively about how they're going to change it. This is the fourth thing you got to remember, that positivity brings innovation. Yes, there are some challenges in your life. The more you focus on how crummy those challenges are, the more you focus on those obstacles, the more you complain about them, the more you grouch about them, the less you'll ever do to change them. Good job. You have successfully diagnosed the problem. Well done, Grumpelstiltskin. Oscar the Grouch, we are so happy to have you here. Thank God you showed up because the rest of us didn't know it sucked. Now, you got to do the hard work of turning obstacles into opportunities of turning adversity into your playground. And once you flip the switch and you can become positive, well, now you're free to create, to change, to innovate. Innovation is when creativity goes to work. Innovation is really important around here. Do you know during the first 12 weeks of COVID, we tried 11 different models of church services? Now, if you were here for all those, you probably had whiplash. You were like, geez, Louise, Dave, knock it off. But the truth is, we're innovating. We're trying to figure out what's the best way to keep people safe. What's the best way to allow people to feel secure? And what's the best way for us not to just run and hide and stick our head in the sand? And we're going to keep finding new ways and keep finding better ways. Because we want to elevate and celebrate the name of Jesus, even in the midst of some pretty crazy circumstances. Verse 15. Y'all need a break? Anybody have to go pee? Just checking. Well, you know, I'm considerate like that, you know. Now, if these people had been thinking of the land from which they had come, they'd have taken the opportunity to go home. Which is to say what? Which is to say probably if at some point Abraham, you know, 60, 70 years into looking for this promised land, had asked himself how well it was going... He'd have gone, not super well, 
and probably tried to turn around. Moses leading the people of Israel through the desert for 40 years. How's it going, Moses? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I play football in Detroit. If they keep looking at how all their plans have failed, they'd have got discouraged, turned around, and gone home. But they didn't because they knew this, number five, that perseverance outlasts planning. Now, I'm a big planner. I plan well in advance. I make detailed plans. I enjoy making plans. Pro tip, if you're ever trying to stay awake in church, which I realize has probably never happened to you here, but if you're trying to stay awake in church, the best thing to do is make plans. I suggest remaking all of your plans for 2020 because they didn't work out so good. But that's just it, man. Plan plans are always going to break. Plans are always going to fail. Plans are 12 for 10 cents. So when your plan fails, then what you're going to do? Quit? Cry? Go home? Take a nap? Get some me time? When your plan fails, then it's up to your grit, to your perseverance. I mean, you ever get lost in the woods? No cell phone service, no map, no compass. How are you going to get out? Sitting down? You get, you get unlost by striking forward. Well, so, Dave, you don't understand, man. I'm, I, I got dreams, but I don't have the time. Sleepless. No, no, Dave, you don't understand. I'm already so tired. Chase your dreams tired. Well, yeah, but I got to work because I don't have much money. Chase your dreams poor. No, but I don't have any friends. I don't have any support. Chase your dreams sad. Chase them lonely. Chase them by yourself. Nobody else going to chase your dreams. Ain't nobody else care. They're yours. It's your vision. It's your future. It's the dream God has put in your heart. It's the promise God has made to you and with you. But it's not just for you. It's for the people around you and behind you. Your life is meant to be poured out for others. And the best way you can do that is by striving after all that God has laid before you. As it was, these people desired a better country. Anybody else desire a better country? I traded up once already, but I like my odds for a second time. The heavenly country, therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They desired a better country. Isn't that a funny statement? They desired it. Why'd you work for a better country? Because we wanted one. Yeah, but what's the spiritual reason? We wanted one. Yeah, but what did God tell you? No, he asked the question, do you want a better country? We said yes. He said, okay. That's the whole thing. We, we vilify our desires sometimes, but God speaks to us through our desires. Trust God. He gives you the desires of your heart. And people go, well, I don't know. I mean, sometimes my desires might be sinful. How do I know if they're good? Well, what are they? Well, you know, I want a new truck because my truck keeps breaking down all the time and doesn't have heat and I'm cold. That's a good desire. You should want that. You should get a new truck. Well, you sure? I'm pretty sure. How do you know? I'm right. Just get a new truck. It's fine. Our desires pull us forward. We want things. And the things that we want, provided they are not evil, are good. Desire gives you energy. That's the last one. Desire generates energy. Think about it like this. Like today, it's snowing. 
And let's say you want to build a snow fort. Well, you're going to go home, you're going to shovel snow, put it in a big piles, put the snow fort together, carve out the inside, put some crenolins and merlins on top, pile all your snowballs together, get ready to ambush your friends. You're going to laugh yourself silly, maybe cover it in a little bit of water from a spray bottle later on so it lasts a long time. You can be out there for hours having the time of your life because you want to. But let's say instead, on the way home, your mom says to you, I'd like you to shovel the driveway. The mechanics are exactly the same. You're going to be out there in the cold for hours shoveling cold water. You're going to put it into big piles. But in one future, because you love what you're doing and you want to, you're energized, having the time of your life. In the other future, where you've got to do the exact same thing, except you don't want to, you hate your mom. Desire gives you energy. The energy that Abraham had to find a new country, passed on the legacy of faith to his children and to his descendants till they were more numerous than the stars in the sky. The energy, the desire that Moses had to liberate his people from captivity and from bondage in God's name for God's holy purpose set us on a path of spiritual and civil liberation to the present day. The desires that God has placed in you are not purely for your enjoyment, but for the betterment and the health, the success of everybody around you and behind you. So pay attention to them. God has given you dreams. They might not all be fulfilled, but they should all be pursued. God has given you hope. Hope will not disappoint you. Look for the evidence that things are getting better and chase it and chase it with energy and enthusiasm and passion, not just for the good of the world, but for the good of everybody you love. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have permitted us to enjoy and in which we are allowed to participate enthusiastically and passionately for you and for your kingdom. We want to be better servants of you, and we want to be better servants of others. So help us, Lord, to stay focused on the things you've promised us, not to get discouraged, not to get sidetracked, not to get hamstrung, but to go ahead with you, with you for them. These things we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen.